This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Pam Yanchek Keneally, and I'm the CFO of Tiva, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 546. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Richard Steinhardt, CFO of BioXL, an early-stage biopharmaceutical company focused on drug development that uses artificial intelligence to identify the next wave of medicines across neuroscience and immuno-oncology. Now, <laughs> there is an intersection that one may want to enter fully caffeinated. CFO Richard Steinhardt will be behind the wheel and our guide. After this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me on today. Good, good always to uh, touch base with our finance leaders in the biopharmaceutical space. Uh, we've been speaking to a few of them. Uh, only the last six months we've had uh, more than usual. So uh, I've, I've been learning along the way, as have our listeners. And, uh, Richard, as always, we begin by asking our guests to look back for us and share with us some of those career experiences or milestones they believe help prepare them for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you? Sure. Thanks, Jack. Well, like a number of your other CFOs out there, I started off uh, in public accounting. I worked in the Stanford office of what was then Price Waterhouse, now Price Waterhouse Coopers. 
and I was there for several years and realized that I really didn't like doing that work, that you were in checking everyone else's calculations and, and financial statements and said, gee, I, there's got to be more to working in the finance world than just checking everyone else's work. And I found my way to, uh, at the time, one of the first venture capital funds in the United States that focused solely on healthcare investing. And that healthcare investing went from biotechnology in its early days to uh, healthcare um, services and devices and everything in between. And I spent about seven years there and learned an awful lot about our healthcare system and how it worked and how companies develop new drugs. And I've uh, uh, spent most of my career, uh, virtually all of my career, in the biotechnology industry. Uh, did um, um, venture capital for, as I said, seven years and then ended up in my own uh, in my own um, uh, business doing uh, essentially investment banking work for small private, both private and public healthcare companies, again, mostly biotechnology companies, where I learned an awful lot about how early-stage companies get funded and got to know a lot of the venture capitalists and the investors in the industry and eventually made my way into uh, working as a CFO for a public company. And I had known the industry, had known the people who helped finance the industry, and it was quite valuable to the public company once I got there, bringing some of the skill set there. But what I had to redevelop after having not done it for a long time was some of the work that is required to do um, the actual public reporting, which is another part of this job. So you're not checking anybody's work. You're actually making sure the work is done properly. And uh, so you, you learn to do all of that all over again, which is what I did after about 15 years of not doing public reporting. So I had to do two things, both figure out and, again, apply my skills as uh, working with, with working on Wall Street and also now apply my skills to figure out how to do public reporting again. So that's how, that's how I ended up in, in this job uh, over the last number of years. So uh, I, I know you arrived roughly uh, the same year that the company went public. Can, can you share with us? I, so often that's like jumping aboard a moving train, I would imagine. But what would you tell us about that experience? Well, in my case, it was like uh, grabbing onto a uh, airplane taking off. So um, this company went public in March of 2018. And um, as you know, there's an awful lot of preparatory work that goes on before that. So the company launches its IPO, its initial public offering, at a meeting called an org meeting. So what's an org meeting? That's all the bankers and all the lawyers and all the regulatory people and all the companies sit around a big table and they start to lay out the plans for the IPO. What, 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 what's the process of filing the SEC paperwork to begin the public uh, offering process? So the CFOs are typically at the company several months before that so they can get familiar with the company, begin to get the books and records in shape, and begin to work with the, uh, the investor relations company to lay all that groundwork. Well, I joined the company the day of the org meeting. I literally walked into a room of about 40 folks in a, in a big law office in New York City and said, oh, here we go. So that was my introduction to the company. I really got thrown into the middle of it. Now, the good news was I'd, I'd been around the industry for a while, and of the 40 people in the room, I knew a half a dozen of them. So we all kind of had a little laugh and a chuckle once the, the meeting was over. So that was my introduction to this company. And uh, I, I guess I would advise CFOs maybe spend a little bit of time with the company before that work meeting. Yeah, I, I can imagine that's good advice. Uh, can you tell us tell us about BioXL Therapeutics and what was the uh, what was the opportunity that you saw here that said yeah I'm on board? 
Yeah, that's a very good question, Jack, and let me explain that. So in our industry, in the biotech industry, uh, from the time it takes uh, a, um, a scientist to discover a new compound at his bench to the time that gets to a patient, that could take 15 years. Take a very long time. And so what, what uh, our company does is it has an artificial intelligence um, system that looks at hidden connections. So uh, good drug developers can look at first connections between drugs and diseases, and they're pretty apparent, and they're pretty apparent to everyone out there. But second and third degree connections aren't so apparent. And our AI platform can sift through, you know, dozens and dozens of publications in a day. A good drug developer might be able to sift through one publication a day, and it can look at all kinds of hidden connections for drugs that may have been partially developed, may have failed in a development for a different disease, and say, gee, this failed here, and here's the reason why. Why don't you look here? And that's what it did with our uh, two compounds that we are uh, now developing. And, and what that does is it saves tremendous amount of time. Uh, by the time you start with your development work to the time you may have an approval drug. And that was very appealing to me. You know, I've seen companies take, for example, the last company I was with, which we ended up selling, it took the, that company 10 years to go from discovery and license the discovery through a phase two trial. And part of that was they were resource constraints, but it took a long time. And I said, gee, I don't really want to spend 10 years doing this, and we think our uh, system will allow us to shave a lot of that time off and get to market very quickly. And, and that was quite appealing to me. So. That's our unique, um, our, our unique approach to this uh, business. I love the situation you shared uh, of all the people in that room that you had to step into and all the different types of relationships that needed to be built. Where uh, did you begin in terms of building relationships? It seems to me, of course, in this space, you really have to understand the pipeline and you really need to get to know the R&D folks. You need to know your investors. And you need to know your finance team and, and their competencies, whether they're up to all of what needs to be achieved. Did you set some priorities down for your first, you know, whether it was 100 days, first year, whatever it might have been? Um, I, I think the answer is yes and no. So I was thrown into, in my particular situation, I was thrown into, um, you know, a very fast-moving environment. And so... We had uh, one person who was responsible for the numbers, so obviously I had to build a relationship with him, which I think I did pretty successfully. Then there's an audit that has to get done by an independent accounting firm, so that relationship had to be built. And obviously the lawyers play a very big role in this, and there's a lot of work that goes on between the finance group and the lawyers so that the proper disclosures are made, and the financial disclosures as well as the regulatory disclosures. So I had to build that relationship. And these are things I had done in the past, so I was very comfortable doing that, but each, obviously each situation is unique. Uh, I think I had to spend uh, the most time with uh, the internal folks who were doing this work. So um, there was one individual here in, in, in the United States, and then there were several folks in India where work had been outsourced that I had to work with, and I got to know them. And then we ended up bringing a couple of more people on board, uh, again, through a relationship that I had, help us get it uh, over the goal line. So, yeah, a lot of work has to go on, and for the CFO during that period of time, I think the accountants, the lawyers, and the internal staff are, are pretty important, and where I would put uh, the priority in the beginning. 
we always like to talk about metrics and we ask about top of mind metrics. And clearly, in my mind, the types of metrics you're looking for is to, to help you get that visibility into the pipeline. So I'm wondering if there was a, a particular set of numbers that you began to emphasize or whether there was um, a metric that you decided needed to become more visible in the organization so everyone could understand what the goal was that you were working towards. Is there, are there circumstances like that or no? Is that somewhat removed from what you were up to? Um, well, in our case, it's a little, uh, a little further removed. In our case, we only had four people at the company when we went public. So, uh, so in that case, in our, in our unique situation, uh, I think everyone understood what they needed to do and, and where we were in the development um, process. So we have two compounds in, and in development, as I mentioned, and I think the two folks who were responsible for each of those compounds were pretty well versed. Now, I had to get up to speed with those two folks so that I could understand the, the story and help tell the story. So that was a, a challenge because in addition to making sure all the finances were put together, the financial numbers were put together, the regulatory work was getting done, I had to learn the story. So, um, you know, I was able to do that. You know, again, we were small, so I was able to get sort of schooled uh, in, in, in the specifics of our two drug candidates. What were, so what were those numbers? What were those metrics that uh, allowed you to tell the story effectively? Well, the numbers were um, how long is it going to take for um, our two products to get to market. Now, we have one called BXL501, which is a shorter-term project. So I had to learn the metrics around how long that was going to take and what that was going to cost us to do. Because the bankers and, and all of the investors want to know, well, how much are you going to spend on this compound or this, you know, this potential drug? And how much are you going to spend on the second drug, which is called BXL701, which is a little bit of a longer-term project. So how are you going to be able to afford to do this What's it going to cost you to set up your organizational structure, uh, all, the, all the details around that, how long is this going to take? So we had to build, we had to build all that. We had to build you know, the timelines. We had to build then the attendant cost to that, put a budget together. And then they said, okay, well, once you get these approved, if you get these approved, how, much is this, what, how big is the market? So then we had to go out and look at the market size, um, understand the market, understand penetration rates, and build, begin to build a sales forecast. So we did all that in the first couple of months and began to get familiar with, uh, with, with our business. When it came time where there was the opportunity to make some hires, where was the talent pinch? Where, where was the hiring? Uh, you know, as, as the finance leader, you said you understood where the pains were and where the hiring had to take place. Where was it uh, the talent in this organization that was most badly needed, I guess? Um, so we built a we built a, an entire finance function here. So as I said, there was one individual who was working on it. He's now gone and uh, gone and uh, to spend his time with our parent company. So he did, he's not involved with us anymore. So I knew that once the IPO was done, he was going to phase out and go back and work at the parent level, and I was going to have to build a department. And now I've done that before, so I knew what we needed. And so we hired um, uh, two people. Uh, one as controller, one as assistant controller. Uh, I knew that the volume would be uh, reasonable for the first year or so, and um, we'd be able to do it with two people. We've since added a third person. So we brought them in. Um, and, and very interestingly, both people uh, came to us through word of mouth, which is you know, ultimately one of the best ways to hire people because people know them and work with them, know what their work habits are like. 
and are able to uh, to give you a really firsthand account of their abilities. You know, working with recruiters is necessary, but sometimes you don't get a complete picture of someone. So in uh, our first two hires in the finance group, we were able to do that, and, and we got um, we got very good referrals, and these people have just worked out fantastic. And one of the lessons I take from doing this job is, uh, as CFO, you, you have so many things uh, on your plate in a small biotech company like ours. You really need people who can take responsibility to get your um, statutory reporting done each quarter for your 10Qs and your 10K. And you really need people who you can trust, who you feel comfortable with, so that you're not mired down in the details of doing that. If you get mired down in the details of your quarterly reporting and your yearly reporting, it would be very difficult, in my opinion, to do your CFO job, you know, which is a much more encompassing job, effectively. As a finance leader who uh, you know, must uh, look into the future regularly uh, to realize the vision of this company's offerings, uh, I'm curious, as you look forward, considering the finance function that you just architected and executed, is, this fi- is the finance function 10 years from now going to look the same in your estimation? And forgive me, I'm asking you to be the visionary for, uh, for finance here, but having just built this, I mean, you might even think, you know, interestingly, five years from now, I might not even have to do this part of the business anymore, so we'll be more interested in architecting it this way than, than what I've built here today. I mean, does anything like that ever occur to you? Well, sure, absolutely. This is, first of all, it's a great question. Um, things are going to change dramatically. Um, you have to plan uh, for the compounds that we're working on to ultimately be successful. That's, what we, that's how we think about them. And once these compounds are successful in the clinic and through reg- the regulatory process, you, you have to think about how are you going to sell them? Are you going to license them to uh, potential partners in other parts of the world? Are you going to sell it yourself in the United States? Are you going to partner with somebody in the United States? So all these things have to be considered. And as you consider those things, you have to look at what your structure is going to be in the future and what are the people you need internally to make sure that those structures can be supported properly. So, you know, we'll have um, a much bigger group depending upon which exact way we decide to pursue uh, marketing of these products. And there will be a much larger organization supporting all that. So, yeah, absolutely, we think about that all the time. We, we build budgets around that. We build scenarios around that. And those things change fairly regularly, which leads me to, you know, uh, um, a point you haven't raised, but we need to add to the – finance organization now so that we can do more analytical work, and we're thinking about that as we speak. Where do you, uh, where do you think those people might reside? Where, where do you find that type of talent today? I'm sure it's challenging. Yeah, it is. Um, one of our people came from another biotech company uh, here in New Haven who uh, the company actually moved out of town, and she was available, and so we hired her uh, right away, and she's been a great hire. Um, our controller came from another public uh, reporting environment, which was a little different. But he's, you know, we do public reporting at one company versus another. It's pretty similar. But he picked up the differences in biotechnology pretty quickly. Um, for a financial planning and analysis person, it would be wonderful if we could get someone from another small biotech company uh, that may have um, succeeded or, 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 or for whatever reason wanted to join us. Uh, that would be a, an ideal place. Um, but anyone who's done uh, good financial planning and analysis, I think, in, a, in a, a small business would be good for us. So, you know, those are the kinds of places I think we look uh, first. 
Richard, thank you for allowing me to throw a few extra questions your way. I'm going to jump back on our, our flow here and ask you for a finance strategic moment. And this is could have been any time during the course of your career, but it was one of those times where your lines of sight into the organization as a finance executive allowed you to see an opportunity or a risk, and you responded, whether you avoided something, whether you uh, pursued an opportunity, whatever it may have been. Does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? See, that's a, that's a great question, Jack. And I looked at some of the uh, preparatory material that you had up on your website. And I think for me, there was no real specific moment that said, ah, aha, this is, this is what I should be doing. I think for me it was evolutionary as I, as I, and I started doing this job about 15 years ago. And what occurred to me uh, pretty rapidly was um, you really have to have great people to work with you. And to me, that's, that's really critical. So when I look to hire people, there are two really critical things that come to my mind. One, and I'll, let me say this, and so it's a little funny, but I want to be the dumbest one in the room when decisions are made. So I really like to hire smart people who can do their job without, um, you know, being micromanaged by me. I don't want to do that, and, and I've found over the years that people don't want to be micromanaged. So you find people who are really smart who can do their job. And then the second really important trait I look for is people who have some humility around them who aren't looking to conquer the world. You know, obviously you want people who are confident in their abilities, but you don't need someone who is a master or mistress of the universe to work for you. And I found if you stick to those two important traits when you look to hire people, you're really in good shape. And, and I've tried to do that, and I've tried to instill that in the organization here. And I think for the most part we've been successful in finding people like that. And that works. That really works because now you, you have confidence in your folks. You, you don't have to dig into all kinds of detail that's, un, that's not required. And a CFO in a company like ours, you tend to have your hands in a little bit of everything. You know, you sit in strategic meetings, you sit in the clinical meetings, so you can understand what's going on in all parts of the organization. So therefore, you need really strong people in finance. And I think we've been very successful in, in doing that. And those are two things that, if you talk about a real eureka moment, it's occurred to me over, over several years in hiring a number of people that, that I think are critical in, in, uh, in really any role, and particularly in the finance role. Two insights worth remembering, thought leader listeners. When we return, Richard Steinhardt will be stepping into the mentoring round with us. We'll be back. I think the HR just being focused on HR processes and trying to operationalize those is a bigger fundamental shift going on in the business, which is less about worrying just about HR transactions, but more about worrying about your employees and really providing an environment where your employees can thrive. That is the voice of Paul Barron, who I will be posing three questions to immediately following our interview with CFO Richard Steinhardt. Now, for your question, who is Paul Barron? Uh, Sage Impact, and they uh, 
The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Well, Richard, we're back and we're stepping into our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inform and inspire future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you about finance and business today? Well, I think what's going on in business today is things move much more rapidly than they used to. Um, in the old days, you'd go home at the end of the day, there was no email, there was no uh, internet, and your day ended and you had to wait for the next day for things to start. And today, things just go all the time. So I usually put my uh, phone down about 9 o'clock at night and say, okay, that's enough for me today. And I'll look at my uh, emails at 6 o'clock the next morning, and there will usually be a half a dozen uh, to a dozen from people around the world that we work with. And so it's kind of neat to get up in the morning and say, okay, what happened overnight? that I get to look at today and move forward with today. So I think the pace of things today is much more rapid than it used to be, and that's probably good for all of us. Our interview began, Richard, with you sharing with us. Uh, so we, were all, we were all seated with you inside the Price Waterhouse uh, uh, office as you uh, set a new course for yourself. You knew finance was it, but not necessarily auditing, and you took that path that led to the CFO office. When you arrive in that office, was there something you wish someone had told you? Was there a piece of information that you wish someone had whispered in your ear um, as you took on the reins of leadership for that first time? Anything come to mind? Um, I think I wish that someone had told me how diverse. Now, again, my, my experience is limited in CFO roles to these biotech companies, and I've gotten very familiar with how these biotech companies work and how they should work and how they shouldn't work. Um, I guess I, if I had um, had a perfect mentor, he would have told me, Gee, this is a very diverse job, and get used to putting your fingers into all kinds of different things here, from the company's lease to, you know, making sure that you have proper drug supplies to do your clinical trials. So I enjoy that. I enjoy uh, solving problems when they come up and dealing with issues as they arise. So, but no one kind of told me that. I, I was expecting to do financial reporting, work with the lawyers, work with the accountants, and all of those traditional finance things. But in the roles I've had, because they're small companies, the role is much, much broader than that. And I've come to enjoy that. I guess I didn't realize that the first day I took one of these jobs. But that, to me, is the fun of it and the challenge of it. Well, uh, clearly there's a real sort of entrepreneurial vein that runs through uh, your career. Uh, entrepreneurs sort of march to a different drummer altogether. But we would like you to take a look at yourself and share with us, is there a personal habit or part of your daily routine that you believe has contributed to your 
your professional success in one way or another? Well, I, 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 that's a great question. I don't know if I can put my finger specifically on one thing, but I think if I worked in a large company where the job was repetitive, uh, I would get pretty bored pretty quickly and, and wouldn't be very good at that job. So in, in the jobs that I've had, I've created for myself, because these CFO jobs in these small companies, you tend to create um, and fill a void, and that void, as I had mentioned earlier, it can be pretty broad. So I think that that broadness I really enjoy. I, I enjoy getting up in the morning and say, okay, what are the things we get to deal with today? What are the challenges we get to deal with today? And I know this is a bit of a cliche, but every day really is very different here and in these jobs than you would see in, you know, a, a more routine finance job in a large company. I do different things every day. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, there's one book that I read. It's an older book at this point. It's written by Jim Collins, uh, Good to Great, um, which I really enjoyed reading. It's a, it's a quick read if anyone wants to go through it. And he talks about hiring people, and this is some of where my concept came from, people who have passion for their job and um, people who are entrepreneurial for their job. And one of the things he talks about um, passionately is, and I think the quote, if I remember properly, is called, lavish time on recruiting. Because, again, you want to get the best people you possibly get. Uh, you want to be, the, as I like to say, the dumbest one in the room when decisions are made. And I really think that has a dramatic impact on all businesses, and in particular businesses like ours that are small, small businesses that really depend on people. Okay. Well, we're up to our final question where we get to ask you to look forward and share with us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. Well, that's another great question. Um, we're in a pretty dynamic environment here at Biotrail Therapeutics. We are about to um, uh, about to launch into our phase three trial for our new product, BSTL 501, which is a product that deals with acute agitation, um, the treatment of acute agitation. And so our job here in the finance group and my job is to support the people who are going to be working on that trial. Hopefully we'll have a successful trial. We'll see in a few months. You know, we're all... We're all doing everything we can to make it successful. And um, my job is to support that, both from an operational perspective and from a financial perspective. So that's very exciting for us, and uh, that's really in our forefront right now. CFO Richard Steinhardt, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed that uh, conversation. And, uh, again, have a nice day. You too. Thank you, Richard. We now feature a special guest from a recent industry conference. Hello, it's Jack Sweeney, and I'm attending Sage Intax Advantage Conference this week in Las Vegas. And I've caught up with Paul Barron, uh, who is today Vice President of Product and Marketing for Sage People. I had uh, connected with Paul in an earlier life at a at an HR tech uh, conference where I had quizzed Paul on a number of different human capital uh, workforce topics, which uh, at the time he always came back with some really uh, interesting insights. Paul, one of the observations I shared with you earlier uh, that I was hoping to explore a little more with you now was that during our uh, our CFO interviews, I will frequently 
perhaps ask a workforce-related question of a finance leader. And the finance leader will quickly point out that they uh, perhaps uh, lead HR or the HR person, excuse me, reports to them. And uh, however, if I dig a little deeper and I ask them uh, about, you know, what are your priorities when it comes to the workforce, uh, the answers are not as always information rich. (laughs) Anyway, I wanted to talk to you about that because it seems to me that Many finance leaders are not as advanced or are not uh, taking as much of a leadership role uh, as they are maybe in other areas, such as customer uh, engagement and measuring the customer experience. Uh, When it comes to the workforce, uh, they're not quite as advanced. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing some thoughts on my observation. Well, I think, first of all, you raise a really interesting point, which came out in our discussion, as to some CFOs really are well-connected with HR and understand some of the ongoing operational issues within HR, Um, others less so, perhaps. But I think that what is really quite interesting, Jack, is that there's a fundamental change that's happening within HR itself. Instead of HR just being focused on HR processes and trying to effectively operationalize those and using software to do that, there's a bigger fundamental shift going on in business, which is less about worrying just about HR transactions, but more about worrying about your employees and really providing an environment where your employees can thrive. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's so important for a number of reasons. First of all, if you're providing really great experiences in the workforce and the workplace, you are going to get people more motivated, better engaged, and your performance goes up. But equally important, that also provides positive feedback in the marketplace. We all know about platforms like Glassdoor and other social platforms where people can talk freely about companies that they're working in and how they feel about it and and whether it's a good place to work. The reason that's important is it affects your employer branding, which means really are you an attractive company when it comes to competing for talent? Do people actually see your business as somewhere they want to go and therefore you're in a better position to find, source, acquire and hire really good people? And if you're providing those great experiences, you're likely to be able to retain them, which goes full circle then to things like, you know, costs and efficiency and things that a CFO may matter from a finance point of view, but may not necessarily be considering from a broader business point of view. I would make the assumption that employee churn is the primary number that finance leaders probably turn to when they're discussing the health of the workforce or their, you know, the workforce, the health of the workforce mindset, let's say. Well, it's certainly one of the key ones. Clearly, if, you, if you're not able to retain good people, then, you know, that's a, that's a problem in itself. But also, you may have a situation where you can't, find and hire good people either um, for various reasons but a lot in turn then comes back down to well how much visibility does a CFO have of the workforce that they actually currently have and I'll give you an example you know we have a customer now before they use Sage people that have been growing fast they're in a number of different countries Uh, they're in the software space and they basically it would take them weeks to be able to do a simple headcount analysis we just understand you know how many people have got working in different parts of the world 
they also started to realize they'd got a churn problem. And it, it, you know, they, they didn't know exactly what the reasons were, but it was about 40%. Well, if you're a small business trying to grow fast and you've got an, a, a you know, retention issue where you've you know, 40% churn, clearly that's a big problem. So the issue they had is, well, how do we go about understanding what's going on? And this is where they were able to use Sage People in this case to be able to understand, first of all, you know, well, where their headcount was, how many people they had where. But more critically, they could then start drilling down. And they really identified two key problems. First problem was in India, where they got a large number of millennials that were working for them. But the challenge at the time in India was that a lot of software companies were hiring. There was a lot of competition for talent. And it was quite common for somebody maybe to join a company or appear to sign up to join a company, only to find that they either stayed a very short period of time or didn't even show up at all when the start date happened because they'd been offered you know, a, better, a better job down the road for you know, an additional 10% or whatever. So that was the first problem they identified. The second problem they identified was actually in Europe, where they were starting to realize that they got a larger number of their employees were beginning to retire, and they weren't in a position to really understand you know, the fact they were seeing natural uh, attrition, if you will, because people were retiring, and therefore they not only had a headcount problem, but they'd also got a skills issue. And so they were in a much better place then to come up with policies to address both of those problems. Paul, we're already up to our third question, so I'm going to have to ask you uh, to once more look into the future, which I know you're, you're very good at doing. And uh, just from the point of view of the finance leader and the metrics that are important to them, is there a metric perhaps that finance leaders, you would expect finance leaders to be using more uh, in the future when it comes to uh, the workforce, measuring the workforce, whether it's uh, the mindset, the performance, whatever it might be? It's a really good question because clearly metrics is pretty fundamental. I think that there's an opportunity for anybody now looking at, at HR metrics to think in terms of both lead and lag metrics. Many metrics are lag, but lead metrics may be more around things like succession planning or looking more into the future and being able to understand things like, well, where have I got skills gaps? Where, am, where have I got um, talent issues that I need to address and I need to be thinking ahead? And I need to be starting to plan now for that. Equally, having said that, I think the CFO also has to be on top of, well, where are they now with hiring? I mean, hiring in particular is critical for smaller businesses. And again, if you're trying to grow fairly quickly, if you're not able to hire quickly, if you've got problems in terms of, you know, your pipeline or you're not closing the hires out and getting them on board quickly enough, they can be real challenges. Interestingly, in some recent research that we did, the, the whole onboarding issue turned out to be one of the most critical problems that HR leaders have identified. So again, understanding things like you know, time to hire, time to skill, um, time to value uh, are also key metrics that um, the CFO might be interested in looking at. Paul Barron, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter. 
featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.